Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. I've got to tell you, I've got an amazing show for you today. I'm not going to overwhelm you. I'm going to just give you one hour at a time. Uh, Gary Thomas is going to be joining me in just a minute. And then in the second half of the hour, uh, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff will be joining me. And so that is going to be hour one. I'm so looking forward to talking to Gary. He's written a book called The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God created us to be. He is uh, an amazing writer and speaker. He's a brilliant communicator. He loves bringing people closer to Christ. He's also completed 14 marathons, including the Boston Marathon, three times. So explain to me, Gary, what what this runner's high is, because to me, running is nothing but pain. (laughs) Bill, I've always loved sports, but I don't have the ability. But running is one of those things where you just don't stop and you're still running. And so it, it kind of suits me. Mm-hmm. So uh, when is your next uh, marathon you've got scheduled? You know, I'm, I haven't done one for a couple of years. Okay. Last one I did, actually, I did the Munich marathon, which was a bucket list for me. Nice. I started running when I saw Frank Shorter win the uh, marathon in, in Munich in 19... 19- was it 72? Mm-hmm. Sounds about and right. And I saw his arms that looked like my arms. I said, hey, <laughs> there's a skinny guy that's in the Olympics. Right. And it really kind of put the bug in my ear. And the Munich Marathon finishes in the same stadium where um, Frank Shorter finished. So um, it was kind of fun to be able to do that. You know, it's funny when people say they're you know running a marathon, you never say, well, did you win? No, yeah, well, not me. <laughs> it's always that barefoot guy from Kenya that wins, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for doing the show. Let's first talk about, uh, are you living in Houston right now? We have been for about 10 years. Okay. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, yeah. but uh, we've been in Texas for about 10 years now. Yeah, so tell me how you are doing right now, given all that's going on in Houston. Well, it, it's a funny story. We feel guilty, to be honest. We, I spoke at a church at Southeast, and some of your listeners may have heard it's out in Louisville, and we just couldn't get back into Houston. They canceled all our flights on that Sunday afternoon, and they canceled all the flights on Monday. They canceled all the flights on Tuesday. So we gave up and just flew to Phoenix and waited okay. it out and okay. got back in on Saturday. So everybody and everybody on Facebook was telling my wife, don't come back. It's terrible. So we kind of missed it. Mm. Um, not, sort of the opposite of Ted Cruz. We were trying to get in. Uh, we, we didn't go out, but we just couldn't get in. Right. So. And how did your house do? Fine. Okay. Yeah. We were, it, again, it was weird. We felt blessed and spoiled. According to our neighbors, we were only out of power about an hour total. Okay. So I don't know if a high local official has a mother on this block because we seem like we're the only block we've heard of that has that, but mm-hmm. uh, we, we meant, so no, no pipe problems or nice. we did have to boil the water. We came back for a couple of days, but given what else 
Houston faced. We felt like we got off very easily. Yeah. Well, I would love to talk about your uh, book, The Glorious Pursuit. Um, I mean, if you are wondering if if you're the person God has made you to be uh, or not, you, you this would be a book to pick up and to go through. I'd love for you to talk about what do you mean by glorious pursuit? Such a great, great word. Yeah. Well, there's a there are a lot of things we can pursue in life. Uh, we could try to pursue fame. We could try to pursue looking young as we get older. We could try to pursue a huge bank account, a certain number to retire by. Mm-hmm. Try to, uh, you know, athletic excellence and and all. And and some of those are are decent pursuits. But it all came to a head for me one time. My wife and I were. I, I'd done a focus on the family program, and so we went to another place in Colorado that has these hot springs, just to relax a little bit. They have a number of these pools that you go through, and I, it must have been a bachelorette party is what I'm guessing, because <laughs> there are probably eight to ten young women, I'd say mid-30s or mm-hmm. so. And it was astonishing as they were talking about how much money they were spending, how much effort they were putting in, how much research they did trying to look younger than they were. And, and one of them means that all, all the Kardashians are doing this now. Mm. And after a little bit of this, my wife just leans over and says, Gary, can we go to another pool? I go, of course. So we did. And my wife asked me, you know, does it bother you that I'm just not into that stuff? And I just happened to be reading William Law at the time. He's one of my favorite classical writers. He wrote in the 18th century. And I'm paraphrasing him here. But basically he said that we should earnestly pursue humility and patience and compassion and courage and kindness with the same intensity that those in the world pursue wealth, fame, worldly achievements, and physical beauty. And and for me, reading that, it was just turning everything. What do I really value in life? Do I want to look younger than I am? Do I want to just amass a certain amount of money, or do I want to become who God created me to be. And Bill, who God created us to be is someone who mirrors the image of Jesus Christ. And so the glorious pursuit recognizes the ancient practices of practicing the virtues, that is the character qualities of Jesus. And the ancients viewed that the same as bodybuilders view sculpting the body. You know, you do certain exercises to build your biceps or your triceps or your legs. The ancients said we grow to become like Christ by practicing the virtues or sort of the the spiritual barbells, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so it's about learning what are those virtues, how do you practice them, what are the scriptures behind them. And instead of saying just become like Jesus, which is too general and nobody knows what does that mean, you just look at the qualities, what they call the virtues, you start practicing them, and gradually, bit by bit, you begin to look more like Jesus. Okay, Gary, pursuing virtues, it does seem like an incredibly wonderful thing to pursue, and it's glorious, but it also feels like to some who might be listening, something else i got to put on my list to do. So let's talk about well, how, we, how, do we, how do we get away from that mindset of, uh-oh, now i got to work at this. Okay, this is where I go and swim against the tide, and, and you're free to disagree with me, as many probably will. Making more of an effort to me isn't a reason not to do it because I think we we tire ourselves out on the wrong thing. Amen. I'm with more you on that. More important than what I think, though. Second Peter one. So I'm going to use Peter ahead of me. His authority is you know vastly superior. Second <laughs> Peter one says this: 
verse 5, make every effort to add to your faith. Every effort to add. So he's, there's nothing else. It's like somebody straining. And I think of Paul that uses that. This I do, straining with all that I have. It's actually words used for Olympic athletes at the time. And what Peter's saying, though, you make every effort to add to your faith, and he lists many virtues. And then he goes on to say this, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. So I never corner the market on humility or patience or gentleness or courage. I, I want to be increasing in how they're a part of my life. Peter goes on to say they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I, I hear people say, oh, I just don't want another thing. I'm like, well, it's not easy to learn how to play an instrument. It's not easy in this day and age with government regulations to start a business. I'm sure it was not easy for you to get on the air. How many people would love to have your job, but it, but you had to go from nobody knowing who you are to having the program and the outreach that you have now. But I think some of the best things in life take a little effort. So for me, yeah, it, it the pursuit does imply effort, but I think the Bible says that we should be giving some effort. But if I could give the hope here, when I don't practice the virtues, Bill, that's when I live with a lot of regrets. Because when I act in a proud way, I'm ashamed. When I act and let anger instead of patience take over, I'm ashamed. When I respond with harshness instead of gentleness, I'm ashamed. When I respond with fear instead of courage, I live with a lot of regrets. So for me, it's effort, but it's not just who I believe God wants me to be. It's who I want to be. Uh, it, it's the same thing of somebody that doesn't work on their fitness at all, and they look in a mirror, and they're a little ashamed. And it's going to take some work to get into shape. If we look at our character and say, you know, I haven't been painted any attention. I need to get in spiritual shape. I love that. So let's talk about virtues and as we practice virtues what's the difference between practicing these virtues and then just trying to be a nicer person well we need to be targeted and and focused and so uh, I, I go through and the first one i talk about is humility the classics call humility the queen of the virtues there are three times in scripture scripture rarely repeats itself like this once in the Old Testament, twice in the New, where it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Of all the virtues, there's only two that Jesus claims. To Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says he's gentle and humble in heart. And so there's something about humility that sets up everything else. And so I should pursue humility. I'll never become humble, mm -hmm. but I can have increasing measure. Now, Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Jesus never thought he wasn't the son of God. He didn't think he wasn't God in flesh. It's thinking less about yourself. It's making yourself a servant. So if you value humility, what do you do? Well, I used to say this to my kids. You're going into a party. I said people can think of two things. One, do I look good? How's my hair? Am I wearing the right shoes? Am I going to be witty? Do people respect me? Can I make people laugh? And I said, and you'll never know if you succeed. I go, but if you go into that party with humility, Lord, is there someone I can listen to? Is there someone I can encourage? Is there someone that feels left out that I can bring in? I go, every time you'll leave feeling fulfilled and satisfied 
because there are always people that need to be encouraged. There are always people that need to be listened to and seen. And so uh, for me, it was an entirely different orientation in life, trying to put others first as Jesus poured out his life for us. Um, and, and that's something that we just have to practice when I'm mm-hmm. driving. Instead of fighting with other cars on the road, I know none of your listeners ever do that. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can I be the one that lets somebody in? How can I be one that wants to serve other people on the road? I know there are angry drivers. I know there are aggressive drivers. Instead of fighting against them, how can I just be one of those drivers that makes life a little bit easier for someone else? And I'll tell you, when you drive that way, you might get home 32 seconds slower than somebody else, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but you have a lot more peace, a Mm -hmm. lot more joy, and your heart will thank you. So true. Such solid, solid wisdom, Gary. My guest is Gary Thomas. He's the best-selling author of Sacred Marriage. You might know that book, but he's also written The Glorious Pursuit, Becoming Who God Created Us to Be. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thomas is my guest, the glorious pursuit, becoming who God created us to be. Gary, I just got a note from a listener who said, you know, before the interview, just lost him. Let's get him back on the line. We'll take a second here. Gary Thomas is my guest, and he's uh, written a really a powerful book. And he wrote this book originally 20 years ago, and this is an updated edition of the book. And if you want to grow closer in your walk with the Lord, and if you're maybe discouraged in areas of your life, this might be a really good book to give you a, a chance to kind of re-energize that you talk about the practicing the virtues of Christ, and we can become who God created us to be, and then experience Christ in a whole new way. And in this uh, book, he examines the, the, the lifestyle of Jesus and it's really characterized by virtues such as humility that Gary was just talking about prior to the break. I thought that was a very powerful point when you think about humility and going into an event or a party or a gathering where your mindset is not how, how am I presenting myself and how will, how will I appear at the party, but who can I listen to? Who might I be connecting to on a, a level that is going to... Uh, help them in a significant way. So it's a, it's a change. It's a, it's a different mindset. And uh, Gary is um, got some amazing insights in his book, The Glorious Pursuit. Now, hopefully we'll get him back on the air. He just disappeared uh, magically, but uh, hopefully we'll magically get him back. Um, but we are uh, living in a, in a culture that sees a lot of virtue signaling. And we're going to talk about that when we get him back on. Uh, Gary, you back? I am, yes. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I love what you were saying prior to disappearing on about humility and how you can actually go into <laughs> a situation where you think, who can I listen to? Who can I be attentive to? Versus how do I look? How am I coming across? Am I making people laugh? Yeah. Well, the desire to be noticed and appreciated is every bit as powerful as lust. 
and gluttony and greed. And the reality is those things never satisfy. We won't be noticed enough. They might compliment you for your shoes and then mm-hmm. you say, well, was there something wrong with my hair? Or your sense of humor, well, do they think I'm not smart? And humility just turns it around when you're there to serve and not to be noticed. It just gives you a new sense of peace. And that's why one of the themes throughout the book, The Glorious Pursuit, is I see the virtues as God using them to give us our life back. Nice. It's it's really what we want to be. And so there is some work involved, but it's it's almost like I, I guess an analogy would be saving up for retirement. You, you save up for retirement so that you can do the things you really want to do. And I think with virtues, it's you, you put in the effort to to practice what Jesus was, and it's not just practicing it. We've got the Holy Spirit within us to inspire us, to empower us, to shape us and convict us. And, and then we ultimately, we get this life that is filled with more joy and peace, and, and I believe even fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Gary, when we are trying to make a, a concerted effort to grow in virtue, which is a goal I think we should all be... Uh, working on, of course, but how do we avoid appearing maybe legalistic or or living with some kind of guilt about it? Yeah, well, and, and let me stress, in case anybody isn't isn't sure, we don't practice the virtues to get into heaven. We're not saved by our virtue. We're saved by the righteousness of Christ. But there are so many passages in Scripture. The one from from Peter that I read, it's because we have been saved. Peter ends his passage about practicing the virtues that if we do not have these virtues in increasing measure, he says, we're nearsighted and blind, forgetting that we've been cleansed from our past sins. So I, I almost look at it relationally because you know, I'm, I'm more known for the marriage books that I say that the practicing the virtues isn't about me getting into heaven. It's more about me making my wife's life not feel like hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by that, I, I mean it's my it's my closest friends and my wife and my children that pay the price for my impatience or my harshness or my uh, lack of courage or my negativity instead of being thankful and and all of those things um, they're not going to keep me out of heaven, but they certainly. I want to bless them that it's like, this is what I can become. And why wouldn't I have all the things I could give my life over to? And I don't mean to not golfers. I have a lot of good friends that are golf. I used to golf in the past with my son. But when I read an obituary about a guy, and that was really all they had to say about him, that he was a golfer and they buried him with one of his club and he had a certain handicap. And I thought at the end of my life, is that what I want? Well, this was his golf handicap, and he got it down. And is that really what I want to be remembered by? Or do people always remember this person was filled with courage? They were patient. They were gentle. They were humble. All of those things, I think most of us would say, if we have the Spirit in us, yeah, that's what I would like to hear at my funeral. And that's what makes the pursuit a glorious one. It's not selfish. It's not something that we think up on our own. It's simply saying, I was made in the image of Jesus Christ, and I'm recreated to look more and more like mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Glorious Pursuit uh, by Gary Thomas was written uh, 
couple decades ago, but it's been updated for today's generation. So looking back over the last 20 years, Gary, how has uh, pursuing the virtues been sort of contaminated by the world? Well, it's, to be honest, because this is rooted in the Christian classics, and I believe in scriptures, it really is a timeless thing. I, I just think the difference is, I would say, maybe even going back a little bit more than 20 years ago, People generally agreed on what is right, even if they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And now I don't even think there's an agreement about what is right or what is holy or whatnot. When I, I completely rewrote the chapter on chastity, the sense of um, sex only within marriage and the force that gives us and the wonderful nature of it and how that preserves our relationships, um, that would be one where I think the culture just flat out disagrees that that's something to be – um, followed, but we can't let the world determine what we should value. When Paul spoke of humility, when Jesus spoke of humility, to the Greek world in the first century, humility was seen as a weakness. It was seen as pathetic. Nobody in a Greek world would aspire after humility. They would try to overcome it. And so we have to be careful um, in a world that values looking younger than we really are and maybe bravado and all of those things. Not to let our heart be stolen by what we think the world will admire and what the world will celebrate, mm-hmm. but really what is celebrated in heaven and what is truly admirable. Mm-hmm. Gary, we've got two minutes left. Can you give us the difference between surrender and detachment? Yeah. Surrender is recognizing that God is in control, and so often we fight what he's doing in our life. And it's just marked by Jesus. Here's where it's really the one thing that marks Jesus' life, why he did everything. is John 6, 38. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the sooner that's what we wake up with, the sooner we have peace, because most of us are torn in 10 pieces because our parents want this, our kids want that, our spouse wants this, our friends want this, the boss wants that. You can't please a dozen people, but if you have one master and you surrender to that one master, you can do that. Detachment is when the classics talk about how if you desire to do something, eventually you're going to do it. So the virtue of detachment is detaching yourself from the desires that lead into the sin. Instead of just facing the temptation when it comes and trying to fight it with self-will and iron discipline, you're recognizing how do I empty myself of the desires that make me want to sin in the first place. It's a very freeing virtue. It's sort of one of those virtues that instead of being the seatbelt that protects us when we get in an accident, it's the brakes that prevent us from getting into the accident. Mm -hmm. Gary, you're just so good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I did not plan enough time. I wish we had more time. Well, it's always an honor. I Please come back. Give me this time, and I, I I don't know how we got cut off, but I'm sorry about that. Oh no, no worries. Please come back because I'd love to uh, continue this discussion. There's so much more I'd like to talk about. Your book, The Glorious Pursuit: Becoming Who God Created Us to Be, Gary Thomas. Have a wonderful rest of the day, Gary. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff will be joining me. Just be back in a minute.
Okay, I have to admit I'm feeling a little self-indulgent today as I'm having some of my very favorite guests on today. And I know you will enjoy my next guest, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He's uh, been on the program many times. He's written some of the most engaging books. I have all of them, and I regularly pick them up. I use them as uh, uh, references or little devotional studies or when I'm just wanting to pick up and read for 15 minutes. It's wonderful books. He's written the most misused stories of the Bible, the most misused verses in the Bible. And why is that in the Bible? And that's his most recent. It's a fascinating book, and he is uh, with us to talk about all of his books, but partly that one as well. Eric, welcome. Good good afternoon, Bill. It's so great to be on again with you. <laughs> it's so nice to have you on, and I, I love why is that in the Bible, the most perplexing verses and stories and what they teach us. And when I think about the conversation Satan has with God, and God kind of, in a way, offers Job and says, well, what about my servant Job? Yeah. And that's kind of a troubling and perplexing exchange. It is, because he's basically offering up a godly man for yes. test- testing. And, you know, Job is even declared by God to be a righteous man. And so here is the Lord actually giving free and open reign to a degree. Now, let's keep that in mind. There's a limit to what he will permit Satan to do. But Satan said, hey, this guy's blessed. Why wouldn't he praise you? Take all that stuff away and he'll curse you. And 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 he's part of this celestial thing that's going on between God and Satan. And Job is unaware of it, but he trusts in the Lord in spite of it all. And what a great example he is. It is uh, so powerful. And um, and yeah, that, that whole idea that that God is is saying, "What about my servant Job?" And you, you feel you feel like for you feel like for a minute uh, that I, I want God's protection. I don't want to be put in in harm's way. Right. Well, God does promise to protect us. Our salvation is secure. But there are a lot of things that happen in our lives that are really events that are going on in the heavenly realms that we don't know about. And the good thing about the story of Job is it gives us a glimpse into a world that is often not seen, and it allows us to at least try to make some sense of some of the trials and tribulations that we ourselves go through, all the while knowing that God is sovereign, God is good all the time, and that He has a plan for us, and in the end, He will receive us to Himself. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric, talk about the uh, when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's mm-hmm. something I would love for you to uh, discuss. Right. Well, those are one of those hard sayings of Jesus that made many people fall away and walk away from him because they couldn't quite understand it. But what Jesus was doing was inviting people uh, to believe in him because it was only through his body being crucified, his blood that was going to flow at the cross, that anyone was going to find salvation. And so we want to make sure we don't understand that passage as teaching as if, well, as long as we take communion, which we understood to you know, be symbolically the blood and the body of Christ, 
as long as we can take communion, we're assured salvation. That's not what the passage is talking about. It's not talking about communion. It has to do with identifying with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, primarily in the, his atoning death in this context. So it's only through faith in that that one will be saved. And so we need to make sure we understand that we're participating in the cross event through faith. And so his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. We are in union with Christ through faith, such that all of those things become the source of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. The passage out of Matthew in chapter 10, verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoa. Why is yeah. that in the Bible? <laughs> well, when, when I first heard that passage as a young kid, I thought to myself, wow, uh, I don't want to go to hell where Satan will destroy me. You know, And what I didn't really understand was that Jesus was actually saying that he is the one mm-hmm. that you should fear. Don't fear these people who can kill your body in this life, but fear judgment, the judgment of God that would happen in hell. So... So we need to make sure we understand that passage correctly, but it serves as a warning to us that we should not fear man more than we fear God himself. And ultimately, we shouldn't fear human beings. In fact, the Bible says, what can man do to me? Because essentially, they can take away this body, they can kill this body, but ultimately, the one who has governance over both my body and my soul is not the devil, but God himself. And that's where our healthy fear and reverence should be found. Mm-hmm. Eric, I get a little bit lightheaded when I think of Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice. Mm. Me too. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I can't imagine a greater, uh, most more profound trial than to actually be asked to offer up one's own son as a sacrifice to the Lord. It seems really out of character, out of place. But Abraham had that faith that God was going to do something, even if it says in the book of Hebrews, even if to the point where he had to follow through and slay his son, Abraham believed that, that God would raise his son immediately from the dead. Because even when he said to the people that had gone with him on this journey, stay here and me and the boy will go up to worship and we will come back to you. Mm. He actually knew that somehow God was going to do something, whether he was going to provide an alternative sacrifice or he was going to raise his son from the dead. But Abraham was going to walk in faith and trust in this God who had already given him many, many promises of course, Isaac himself was the promised child, you know, and so here Abraham had to exercise that kind of unbelievable faith, and to the point where he had the knife raised, ready to slay his son, and I can't, as a parent, even begin to imagine the horror of what that feeling must have been like, but yet he still trusted in God, even when humanly he didn't know how it was going to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? So these stories in the Bible are there to teach us, to train us on faith, to to teach us what to be aware of, how to trust in God. Um, Some of these stories are bizarre and crazy, and you're just like, what is all this about? And some of it's about God bringing judgment on evil, the way in which he does it. Um, And he's he's got full reign over his uh, 
judgment over humankind, and he can do it anytime he wants in any way he wants. Mm-hmm. We should be just grateful that God has stayed our execution long enough that he gives us opportunity to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest, and he's written a book called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. You know, Eric, I've been throwing a lot of stuff at you. Why don't you bring up one of your favorite crazy stories that are, is in your book? Well, you know, there's a, there's there's too many to choose from. I <laughs> okay. mean, there's a lot of them here that I think that, that really tickle my fancy, but I think if I was going to choose choose one of them, it's 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 probably going to be um, one of my favorite Old Testament passages, and it's 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 <laughs> I don't know how to say it. We've talked about Balaam and the talking donkey before, but one of my favorite ones was Jeremiah's linen underwear, and I think we've <laughs> talked about that one too. Um, so I'm trying to find something that we haven't talked about before that's one of my favorites. Um, there's there's great stuff in the New Testament as well with Ananias and Sapphira, the um, the, the angel armies of of Elijah in the Old Testament is probably one of my top ten because here is Elijah who is uh, giving secrets of the enemy to the king of Israel. And one of the things that he tells him is that, hey, you go down here, they're going to set up an ambush against you. So he keeps telling them and telling them, you know, don't go down there. And the king of Aram or Syria, either one it could be called, um, is wondering who is it in his own camp who's giving away his secrets? Who's the leak in all of this? Who's the mole yeah. who's spilling the secrets to the king of Israel? And his own lieutenants and generals say, no, 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 it's none of us. It's that prophet over there in Israel. He keeps telling the king of Israel even the secrets of, of what you speak in your bedroom. Now, if that isn't horrifying enough right there, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know what is. So this brilliant king of, of Aram, the enemy of Israel, decides, okay, well, let's sneak up and catch this prophet. And what's so ironic and hilarious about that is why would this king now think that their new plan is going to work against somebody who's already telling the king of Israel their secrets? So they basically go and surround Elisha and his servant at night, trying to ambush him. And Elisha basically is calm as a cucumber, but his servant is nervous. He gets up, looks out, sees all the all the armies of, of Aram surrounding them and saying, My father, my father, what shall we do? What shall we do, my master? And and basically Elisha says, Don't worry, there's more of us than there are of them. And he's like, What? Yeah, and so Elisha prays at that point and asks God to open his servant's eyes, and he sees all of these angel armies that are surrounding them, protecting them from potential evil. And that story just pricks my imagination, because how many times has God sent his angels to protect us? And we have absolutely no idea, once again, just like the Job story, of what's going on in the heavenly realms, and how God in his graciousness protects us from evil and harm. Mm-hmm. Eric, I'm going to jump to one of your other books just for one question, then I'm going to go mm-hmm. back to the uh, the other one. But uh, I've been meaning to ask you for a while, I've, I've jotted this down, ask Eric about an eye for an eye, the yes. passage out of Exodus 21. Well, we use a lot of the culture today uses that as justification for revenge, when in actuality it was designed in the Mosaic Code in the Old Testament to say that 
whatever punishment happens as a result of this violation of the law, the punishment must fit the crime. So if you and I get uh, pulled over for going 40 mile per hour in a 25 mile per hour zone, we shouldn't expect to get the death penalty for that, right? So at least I hope not. But the punishment that we get, whatever fine we have to pay, um, is it ought to be commensurate with the crime itself. So that's what the eye for an eye means. It's not warrant for getting back at someone or giving you permission to get revenge. It's more about the punishment must fit the crime. And I think the context of that is very important. In fact, all of these scriptures that I talk about in my books are all based out of what is the original context with the author intended and the original hears heard. That's what we have to go after. Mm-hmm. I'll take a little break. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. The book that we are mostly chatting about is called Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and what they teach us. And I got to let you know, it's a, it's a fun book. It's an easy read. Uh, each chapter is kind of its own little standalone story, and it's about three or four pages. So each little story you can read in, you know, five or ten minutes and get a full understanding and comprehension of it, and you'll walk away a much smarter person. So we'll be back in a few minutes. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. He's written a number of books. The one we're chatting about is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. I love uh, learning, and you do such a nice job of uh, giving us an understanding of these difficult passages. Uh, You know, Eric, I'd love for you to talk about the lead us not into temptation. Mm. Yeah, in fact, that's part of, of the Lord's Prayer. We know that God would not purposefully lead us into sin. So what's that all about? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's the question that, that we have to ask is, what are we praying for there in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, lead us not to temptation? Well, I believe it's, it has to do with the idea that we don't want to be put in a situation that would overwhelm us to the point where we have nothing to do but give in. And, and of course, we, this is where we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Paul elsewhere um, said that when we are tempted in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, he said, when we are tempted, the Lord will always provide for us a way out that we may be able to escape it. Um, So the goal to get out of temptation is not to give into it, but to look for the God-ordained hole that he's opened up for you to escape that temptation. So what we're praying for there is praying for God to, to, to lead us in a way that we're not going down a path of temptation that would overwhelm us. And, and so I think that the goal there is, to, is found in the very, very next phrase, uh, lead us not to temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. So the next phrase actually helps us understand what is meant by the prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we want to be delivered from evil. Um, the fact is we're going to experience temptation, and it's not wrong to experience temptation. In fact, we know even our Lord was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And so he himself provides the example for us. What do we do in the midst of that temptation? Well, we, we go to Scripture. We're, that's, that's our lifeline. 
And that's what Jesus did. He quoted Deuteronomy to the devil and, and basically refuted all of the line of thinking that the devil was tempting him with, with Scripture. Because Scripture has a way of getting our heads on straight. And this is one of the things that I, I want to talk about today, Bill. If you have a second, I'd love, I'd love to chat about this whole idea of the role of experience in interpreting Scripture and in the role of experience in the Christian life. Because experience is very, very important. And, and we all have them, and we have experiences with God, but experience doesn't come at the expense of truth. One of the principles that I, I try to teach in my classes here at Trinity College in Florida uh, and in my adjunct courses at Shepherd Theological Seminary is the fact that Scripture interprets experience. It's not the other way around. So Scripture kind of serves as the lens through which we should interpret our experiences. But today, everyone is all about their own experiences or their own version of truth, and they often read that back into Scripture or try to make Scripture bend to what they already believe about their experience. And that's what's dangerous. We have to make sure that Scripture has its right place uh, as, as the primary means through which we understand Scripture. I even had, I've had conversations before where someone has come up to me and said, you know what, I know that's what that scripture means. I know that's, origin, that's what the original context is or what the author may have meant or what the original hearers might have heard, but that's not how I read the scripture. Here's how I've experienced that scripture, and that's the most important thing to me. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's, that's not it. That's, I mean, the devil uses experiences to deceive us but the Holy Spirit's job, according to John 16, is to lead us and guide us into all truth. Mm-hmm. Nicely said. Thank you for sharing that. So when I read a verse like Luke 14, 26, that says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, mm-hmm. wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That seems a little radical, doesn't it? Well, it does seem a little radical, and it's one of those things where we have to say, okay, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Obviously, we know we're not supposed to literally hate our family. That would be unbiblical and not in keeping with Christian love or Christ-like love. So what does Jesus mean there? He's actually using a Hebrew idiom, and it's the idea that um, you should love something less than me. So he uses the word hate, and it kind of comes across as a different—we understand it from our experience as hate is like the worst thing ever. But Jesus is basically saying, don't love anything in this world more than you love me. So it's it's an idiom that's used as a comparison Mm. here. Um, Love me most, and then love everything else second— but don't love those things more than me. So it's, it's, a, it's a phrase, it's a way he speaks that would have been understood to the original hearers of his day because it's used as a comparison uh, in the Hebrew idiom and not necessarily a literal hate for your family. Yeah, and it's not that we love bad things, but sometimes we can love good things too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're supposed to love them less Right. Because what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Okay, Eric, we understand uh, marriage to be um, one man, one woman for life. Explain why Solomon had 700 wives and 300 co- concubines. Uh, because he disobeyed God's commands. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the, 
that's the short of it. Okay. Solomon is Solomon is not really um, a picture of a moral example that we want to follow. And you know, a lot of those people in the ancient Middle East did practice a lot of the pagan practices that were in the in the region, and one of them was multiple marriages. And one of the reasons why they did the multiple marriages was actually to make covenants and treaties with these other nations, and that was the way they would solidify it, by maybe marrying a girl from the other tribe in order to solidify some kind of relational agreement. And so they did that quite common in the Old Testament, and David did it as well. He had multiple wives. Solomon had multiple wives, but that is not the way the Bible teaches that marriage should go. In fact, the Scriptures actually condemn that earlier in the Mosaic Code. And so so what we know to be true is all the way back to Genesis, where everything was defined for us at the very beginning, that it should be one man and one woman as committed companions for life. They become one flesh. But those people in the ancient Near East didn't follow those commands, and Solomon was swayed. It says he was swayed even by these wives to 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 worship and follow other gods. Towards the end of his life, he kind of compromised his faith in many ways. And and so, yes, that is not meant to be a model. Um, that is descriptive. And what we talk about in scriptural uh, teaching is that that is not um, prescriptive, in other words, how we should live our life, but it's descriptive of how they lived their life. So it can't be used as warrant for that kind of living today. It's describing inappropriate behavior back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke 12 is troubling when it says, from now on, uh, or do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against one another, three against two, and two against three. Right. What's with that division? Similar, similar situation. He's describing what's going to happen as a result of his coming, not necessarily saying this is why he came. So he's not saying, well, I've come here just to divide everybody up. No, he wants unity, but that's not going to happen because the gospel himself, the word, the word Jesus himself, um, the word that we use for Jesus is Christ, right? Jesus the Christ, he's, that in itself is offensive to people, and it's going to be naturally offensive, and it's going to cause division. There are going to be people who are not going to believe in him, not going to trust in him. And so when he was saying that, I have come um, not to bring peace but division, that's really what's going to happen as a result of his coming, not the intended purpose for why he's coming to prescribe that kind of behavior among us. Mm-hmm. Just got a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about the foot race to the tomb. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those passages that, that you kind of wonder about. Um, John wrote about that and whether he was uh, trying to jab at Peter for outrunning him or not. <laughs> you know, that's one of those things that, that, that's a little puzzling to us. But obviously, it was one of those details that he put in the Bible Um so at the resurrection, after the resurrection, when the women came back and said, he's gone, he's been raised from the dead, um, Peter and John you know, ran back as fast as they could and to see for themselves. And it's basically said that John kind of says it, that there was one who outran him. And we all assume that it's John who outran him to the tomb. And why is that in the Bible? Well, it's one of those things that's one of the specific details that's part of the resurrection account. And it kind of adds authenticity to it because 
It sounds like a strange thing to include, but if it really did happen, it actually argues more for the authentic telling of what really took place that day. Mm -hmm. And so these little details that are in the resurrection account are there for us. And a lot of the times, some of these strange stories include details that were like, why did why did God put that in there? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire the writer to write that? Yeah. And it's because it actually argues for the authenticity of the account. Yeah. Why was there 153 fish? Why was Jesus had his head on a cushion? Right. All yeah. of those little details serve a purpose. Yeah. Eric, so much fun. I love having you on the show. I have a bunch of questions that are coming in from, from listeners now, and we're out of time. So uh, Maybe uh, next time. Yeah, let's try to uh, next time. And... I would love to have you back on soon because you're such a delight. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's yep. my great privilege, Bill. Yep. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest. The book we've been chatting about is Why Is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. We'll take a little break, and then Hour 2 is just uh, ahead, and we've got our prayer series continues. Peter Kapsner and I are going to be talking to Dr. Eric Tonus. We can hardly wait. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.